Well, this is going to be uh, part four of my sermon series on discipleship. And so if you're here today uh, for the first time, you can go back to our website and you can get the other three sessions, and I would recommend that to you. I think it would bless you. But today we're going to talk about, again, walking with Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord? How does he want us to live? What is the example of his life? And so effectively what we're going to do is we're going to look at his life. What can we learn from his life and incorporate that walk into our own very life? You see, Jesus gives us the model of godly living. And he does it in a number of ways, and I'm going to focus on the ways as I break this sermon down. First of all, Jesus gave us the model of what it means to live in a family unit. Uh, he was a son, a brother, and he lived in a godly way as he, as he elevated his mother and father and walked with him and lived in an ordinary working family. You see, Jesus worked his whole life until the age of 30. And he subjected himself to his parents in that home and lived as a godly man. And so you see, God created the family unit. God created mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And so God commends us to live in a family unit in a godly way. That is discipleship. As you elevate and honor your wife, and honor your husband and your children. You are really being a disciple of Christ. If you look at the board at Luke 2, verses 51 to 52, you'll see an early glimpse into the life of Jesus. And this is when he had come out of Jerusalem after he had been contending with the religious elites there and studying with them. He was only 12 years old. Then it says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Living there, uh, subjecting himself to his mother and his father at that time. And growing in stature with God and man. And now we won't see Jesus again. We don't hear of, of any miracles uh, or, or any ministry until the age of 30 when he will be baptized with John the Baptist. And so the curtain falls down on his life. However, he pleased God uh, as a man and a human being first uh, and as a child in that home. And he found favor with God and with man because he lived in that type of family unit. God willed the family for mankind. This is the creation of God. And so in every way, as you live within a family unit, you need to understand that you have a responsibility to act like Christ, to elevate those in the family unit, to grow up uh, as a template for us. Now, Jesus also grew and worked in the family business. It is not clear at what point his father, Joseph, died, but he did at some point. Most likely, Jesus was still a teenager when that happened. And so Jesus became the prime caretaker for his mother. Uh, and he had the prime responsibility of that business. And I believe he was responsible also 
for the finances of his brothers and sisters. Uh, and so he puts off his ministry until the age of 30. Have you ever thought, why did Jesus wait until he was 30 to start his ministry? Well, I believe it was because he was responsible for this family unit. He was taking care of his mother. He was taking care of his brothers and sisters. Uh, and that is why, because typically at that point in time, 30 was considered middle age. Uh, it's not the way we look at it today. Frankly, I look at 70 as middle age today. <laughs> I know that there's a few people in the congregation that agree with me, but it wasn't so. It wasn't so back then. That's not the way it was. Uh, and I want you to think of how Jesus viewed his family, because there he is on the cross, and he's dying in the most profound physical agony. His life is draining out of him, and he turns, if he turns to John, uh, his dear friend, and says, behold your mother. And he turns to Mary and says, behold your son, meaning you people now are responsible for each other. John, I'm giving her, my mother, to your care. You take care of her. Even at that point of death, he was still concerned about her. You see, that's the essence of what it means to be walking in the life of Jesus. He had the time to think and care for his mother, even at that most profound. That is the template for us, the responsibility to care for our family. Now, there were times, on the other hand, uh, when the mothers and brothers of Jesus seemed to be rather unsympathetic uh, to his min ministry. You know the story of the, the wedding feast at Cana, uh, and Jesus is there as a, as a guest, and they run out of wine, and Mary, uh, in a typical Jewish mother family, uh, goes over to him and says, hey, they just ran out of wine. Do something about it. Now, Jesus had no intention of starting his ministry at this point, and certainly didn't expect his mother to effectively light the match to start it, but he honored his mother even as he remonstrated against her, and said, effectively, don't you realize I have to be with my father's business? And yet, he bowed to that and did one of the great miracles uh, in his ministry and created the greatest wine that ever existed, uh, as such that the master of the feast even commented. So you see that, that the mother herself didn't fully understand the full call on his life. Uh, and then, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 46 to 50, you get an insight as to how his brothers and sisters interacted with him, and it says there, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, this is in his ministry, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so what you see here is a recognition of a wall between his blood relatives and the work of God. And that's another example for us. Yes, we honor our parents. We honor our family. But when they begin to interfere with the call of God on your life, a curtain has to come down. You can't let your wife or your husband or your family interfere with God working within you 
or the call of God on your life. This is important to understand this because I know so many good people uh, are afraid to step out of perhaps a religious tradition that they have because they're concerned, well, my mother's heart will be broken if I leave that church. You have a responsibility to God. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be graded on your performance with your mother. You're going to be graded on your performance on the kingdom of God. And this is important for us to understand this. Uh, and, and so, really, even at another point in Scripture, we learn that, that they were interfering with him uh, and actually thought that he was out of his mind. Uh, and it was a point where his family was, was concerned because Jesus was too busy and his disciples were too busy to eat. Too busy to eat. Now, when I read that, I said there, there could not have been any Italians in that group of disciples. Because we were never too busy not to eat. But they were too busy to eat. And look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd and, and gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They clearly had a skeptical attitude. He's out of his mind. You're talking about the Son of God. You see, what happens is Jesus was so on fire for the zeal of God, so on fire for ministry, that human beings had a hard time even understanding that kind of action. And his own mother and his own brothers and sisters thought he was out of his mind. No, he wasn't out of his mind. He was serving God. You understand? And that's again where I tell you this is the template for us in discipleship. Is to walk like Christ. To have that kind of zeal in our own lives in every possible way. And so Jesus obviously experienced the conflict uh, in his family. But he put the loyalty to God first. And that's our responsibility. And that's how we are to walk in discipleship. Look, we today as Christians face many of these same issues. I know that there are people here who come <clears throat> from families that have a different religious tradition. Uh, some of you are afraid to step forward in faith uh, because you don't want to hurt your family. Look, you can't do that. You can't do that. If God is touching your heart and he's indicating to you that you need to go in a certain fashion in order to serve God, you have to step out. You don't worry about what your family thinks. You worry about where you are with the kingdom of God. Look, we are to love, care, and nurture our family in every possible way. You are to love, care, and nurture your mother and father and provide for them just as the commandments say. But you cannot let them interfere between you and God. You cannot now, we can, we can be encouraged with the role of Jesus and his example to us because, you see, his family eventually came around. His brother James, his half-brother James, eventually became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And we know from other scriptures that his rest of his family came to believe in Jesus. And so this becomes an important part of understanding. When you walk with God, when you stay straight with God, God takes care of these ancillary issues. He'll take care of those relationships, but that's your responsibility to walk with him. Now, a continuing part of our discipleship with Christ is the example of work. Work. Jesus always worked. Uh, look at John chapter 5, verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always 
at his work to this very day, and I, too, am working. Jesus worked all the time. For 30 years, he worked as, a, as an itinerant carpenter and mason. He worked all the time. And then when he left there, he worked constantly for the, for the kingdom of God. And all of his disciples were working men, every single one of them, whether they were fishermen or tax collectors or in a business situation, they all worked in every possible way. And many of the stories told by Jesus as he ministered to the people were re related to work issues. Jesus himself was a committed working man and told stories about working men, told stories about hardworking shepherds in every way. Listen, work is not a sin. It's a blessing. Even the rabbis during the first century all had training so that they learned a trade. How about that? They could support themselves. They weren't a professional clergy. You understand what I'm saying? They had means to work, and they worked even during the first century church. So what does it mean? I believe that God, as he called me uh, to the pulpit after I'd been many years as a lawyer, that that was a blessing for me because God knew that I would have insights as to what it meant to get up on a Monday morning and go to work when your head hurt and when you didn't want to go and when you knew that people didn't appreciate you. Just like people here in this congregation experience that. But now you have a guy who can walk with you. I know what it's like. I know what it feels like on those days. I know what it's like to be persecuted uh, or to have clients and customers who don't respect you. I, I understand this. All right? I spent my life in this. And Jesus trains us to have that perspective. He trains us. Work is not a sin. It is a gift from God. Paul himself the great apostle, was a tent maker, and he constantly made tents, even as he was evangelizing so that he could support himself. He never totally depended on the gifts of people in order to advance the, the ministry. Uh, manual work is worthy. Work is worthy. Uh, and, and God commends it to us, and that is part of discipleship, recognizing that responsibility that God has given us. Now, I want to say something else about the humor of Jesus Christ. The humor. Now, you probably haven't heard this preached on before. But I want you to think about the kind of sense of humor that Jesus had to have. It's completely replete in the Bible, but we don't really pull it out. Think about spending three years, 24 hours a day, with 12 guys that never truly get you. You understand? They don't get you. They don't understand you. They're walking around in a state of confusion. And think about the kind of sense of humor you had to have to be their leader. I mean, I'm amazed at this. And you see it when Jesus speaks about his parables. Uh, some of the things that he says in his parables are hilarious. Uh, he, he talks about the situation in which a man has a beam sticking out of his eye. Uh, and then another, another time when, when someone is straining a gnat out of his drink and yet at the same time swallows a camel. You know, think about what it took to write these kind of stories and to say these kind of stories. Jesus was incredibly humorous. 
uh, and self-deprecating and had that sense. Uh, and he was extremely fun to be with. How do I know that? Look at all the places that he had been invited as an after-dinner uh, speaker. Uh, his reference to children uh, really connotes a sense of humor and fun. Uh, in in a, the highest possible way. And he was a good friend of tax collectors uh, and sinners. And it suggests that because he was invited to their houses, he had to be good company. People wanted to be around him. People were drawn to him. And so I would say to you that this is a template for you. How many people want to be near you? Are you attracting people or are you repelling them? When I look at you, do I see a face that smiles emanating the light of Jesus Christ? Or do I see somebody glum with a grim visage? Think about that. Think about that as God was calling you to impact the kingdom of God. Jesus was a delightful person with an incredible sense of humor uh, in, in such a way. This is a template for us as disciples. Yes, you can laugh. Yes, you can have fun as Christians. Yes, that's what causes people to be attracted to you and eventually to Christ as well. Now, we can also say that Jesus was a tremendous role model for us uh, in, as a religious example. You might say, well, that, that seems self-evident. Uh, but here's the point. Jesus went habitually to the synagogue. He was there all the time. He never missed. It was a priority in his life to go to the synagogue and worship. And so let me say this to you. Look, we've come out of COVID. And I understand that, that there are many people that are operating under fear. But guess what? COVID is going down the drain. It's time to come out of your house. It's time to get back to church. It's time to join the family of God. It's time to come together and pray together and live together and affirm together. God looks at your commitment to serve him. And part of that is the way you come into church. So do you look at every possible excuse and not show up? And I know, I say to my wife when we come to church on those rainy days, oh boy, we just lost 20% of the church. It's raining in Naples. Or do you say instead, give me an umbrella, I'm going to church. I'm not going to be stopped by that. I have a commitment to serve God. And so Jesus was in the synagogue constantly. His headquarters was in the temple. Uh, and we know that he was constantly serving God and praying and advancing the kingdom of God. Yes, regular church attendance is part of discipleship. All right? Regular church attendance is part of discipleship. And yet Jesus annoyed and infuriated religious people. He infuriated them. Uh, why? Because he did not put up with phoniness, with hypocrites. Uh, and instead, he looked for people who were truly, in their heart, committed to serving God. Not people who were using it as an ostentatious factor. Uh, he, did, he talked about the joy of weddings. Uh, and he repudiated ritualistic hand washing. Jesus was not into ritual hand washing or ritual ceremonies. Uh, he was concerned with inter internal defilement. Not what was on the outside of a person. He criticized all ostentation in religion. And he called it play acting. 
Well, guess what? We're not play-acting at religion, all right? And as I said to you, God doesn't care about your religion. He cares about your heart. Where is your heart? That's what he cares. And look at this. He had no time for pretense. He had no time for ritualism. Uh, and he accepted invitations to dine regularly with Pharisees. With Pharisees. Yet, he was a friend of the tax collectors and the outcasts. He was a friend of the tax collectors and the outcasts. And that is an example of the discipleship we need. You need to befriend the people that are out on the sidewalks, that don't come into church because they don't think they'd be welcome to church, because they're downcast, because they've been beaten up and persecuted. These people need your love and friendship. This is what Jesus has called you to do. So when you see people who are down, when you see people who are out, maybe they don't look like you or dress like you or speak like you, but God wants you to embrace them. God wants you to embrace them. That's the necessary aspect of discipleship that you have to take up. It is astonishing, you see, at the variety of people that Jesus met and ministered to during his three years. He ministered to men, women, old, young, Jew, Samaritan, Greek, Roman, Sadducee, Sadducee, Pharisee. He, he included rich men, poor men. Lepers, the demented, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the tax collectors, the harlots, the fishermen, and yes, even the lawyers. <laughs> he did it all. There was no group that Jesus did not reach out to. No group whatsoever. And People loved to be near him. There was something about Jesus, the very light of God emanating from him, that even as he spoke these eternal truths, that people wanted him near them. That's the necessary aspect of discipleship I want for our church and I want for you. And so the question I say to you is, do people want to be near you? Do they want you in their company? Do they want you to be around them? This is between you and God. Because if you're walking with Christ, the answer is yes. Yes, they want you. Yes, they want you near them. Yes, in every possible way. This is, what, this is a thing that you have to get on your knees and ask God about as you walk with Christ, as we walk in this day two experience of Jesus. The way that he looked at people and related to them, made an incredible impression on them. All kinds of people. And it made an impression on the apostles themselves. You see, they looked at Jesus. They saw how he lived, and it made an impression. The eyewitnesses not only reported this, but the scriptures make it clear as well that the apostles, after Jesus died, tried to imitate him. We see Peter with the crowds. Uh, and with a lame man at the beautiful gate, Peter uh, attempting to do this. We see Peter uh, doing a great speech in Acts after the day of Pentecost. As he speaks to the crowd, he's doing it the way Jesus would have done it uh, in all possible ways. And so even though they criticized Peter because he would eat with Gentiles just like they criticized Jesus, Peter recognized that his master did it. And if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for him. And so 
Jesus was criticized for the company that he kept. Um, he was accused of socializing with the riffraff of society, the lowest of the low. And yet the common people loved him and gladly embraced him. Uh, and the people that were despised and discriminated elevated him in such a way. And that's how God wants us to live. Look, don't think that God wants you just to spend time with the elevated, with the wealthy, with those who are well-speaking. Spend time with those who are outcast. Look for those who are despised. Look for those who are misunderstood. That's what God wants you to do. If you see people like that, you need to reach out to them, to let them know you care about them, to let them know that Jesus loves them. You see, Jesus loves them just the way that he loved you. Look for those who are unlovable and are hurting, and yes, possibly even in prison, even in prison. Now, these are the people who will never come into our church. They're going to remain on the sidewalk outside unless you go out and reach them and touch them and love them the way Jesus loved you in every way. Now look at the amazing contrast at the life of our Lord. Uh, and this is another example of discipleship. He will dine with the despised for the ridiculed, uh, and yet he will, he'll be honored by spending time with friends who are elevated. He speaks out for the poor, but he does not ostracize the rich. Uh, at all of these meetings, presented opportunities to Jesus to advance the kingdom of God. He never let an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God go down. He was always there, whether he was with rich or whether he was with poor, whether he was with tax collectors, or whether he was with lepers. It didn't matter to Jesus. Every person that he met was an opportunity. Now let's look at another example of discipleship, which is close to my heart, the way Jesus treated women. And frankly, I'm disgusted with the, with the way many churches deal with women today, uh, where they're dealt at with as second-class uh, citizens. Jesus didn't do that. Uh, and it was an incredible change in the first century way in which customs were, were delivered in terms of women. One of the striking changes that Jesus brought into, into this world uh, was that women were allowed to belong to his group of people and to his disciples and traveled with him regularly. There were p women in that group that traveled regularly with Jesus. That's in there. You read the scriptures, you'll see it. Without discrimination, they were treated as equal. This attitude of Jesus is strikingly different from his contemporaries during that period of time. Uh, and Matthew's gospel talks about 30 different women. Mark and John speak about 19 women each. And Luke mentions no less than 43. And every time they're mentioned, women are mentioned in the scriptures. They're mentioned with equality, really, with men as well. Uh, it is as though in the Gospels, women are alternated, as they're spoken about, with the mention of men. Jesus accepts women into his group of disciples because he expected his disciples to control their desires. They weren't going to be picked on. They weren't going to be preyed on. He wasn't concerned about sexual depravities during that period of time because he knew that the men that walked there with him were under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can bring women as part of our group and embrace them as fully equal. This is how God wants us to live. He wants you to treat women with respect. 
and with equality. Uh, and this is what salvation is about. Look, at, look, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen, church? All one in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus seems absolutely at ease with women. Uh, he likes them as human beings and sees them equally as he does with men. This is the impartiality you see of God's character. God looks out and he sees us all as equal. He makes the sun rise on the just and on the unjust. And by his example, Jesus is treating women in that same way, possessing human dignity, personhood, and individuality. Uh, he is tender towards the widow. Uh, he told the story of the widow who wore down the unjust judge uh, by her persistence. There was the woman with the issue of blood uh, that he spoke about. There was another woman bent and crippled for 18 years that he healed. He does not pull away when the holy hem of his garment is touched by the woman of Samaria or other sinful women. He does not pull away. He has gentleness and mercy and love even on that woman taken in adultery. Uh, and it's, his reaction to her was absolutely beautiful uh, as he causes those men who sit there with stones to drop the stones and walk away because of the way the Lord interacted. Jesus was a warm family person. Welcome in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he was welcomed in Peter's home as well. Uh, and there in Capernaum, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And he also took Peter's child in his arms. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 36. And there it says, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And I can say this for our church. Uh, I long for the day when we will have an active child ministry. And we already have people positioned here who are ready to go and do that and be effective. And so that when we have people come to the church who want to be a part of this church with children, we say, yes, yes, they are part of the kingdom of God. Yes, we want you here. Yes, we love you here just the way Jesus loved you. To follow Jesus really demands that the disciples develop a positive, honoring, attitude to so many different people in so many different ways. Jesus is the perfect model for holiness in your life. If each one of us could live like him, could walk like him, and serve him like him, what a wonderful world this would be. Can you imagine if we all lived like Christ lived and impacted the world like that? Look, in summation, as I bring this sermon series to a close, and I ask God to have it resonate in your heart. I want you to understand this. In order to be a disciple of Christ, first and foremost, you must deny yourself. You understand? You must deny yourself. It's not me, me, me. It's you, you, you. In every way, with every breath that I take, 
with every aspect of my life and every aspect of everything that I do, it's about you, Christ. It's not about me. And as I take up the cross and I walk towards you for the rest of my life, for whatever number of days I have here, I want to walk with you. I want to uplift you. And it, and it doesn't matter what the cost is. Forget the cost. Because the reward so far overshadows any cost that we have as we walk with him and carry that cross. All of our lives, every aspect of your life is to be surrendered to him. Surrendered to him and put on the altar of God for him in every way. We must examine ourselves every day. We must examine our motives and say, Lord, change me. Help me to be the kind of disciple you want me to be. Help me to walk with you, Father. Help me to stay every day of my life, step after step, as you would have me live. Honoring, honoring those in this world that you have put in front of me. Drawing the unlovable, the unlovable to you, Father. Impacting you for them. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for the words that you've given us. I thank you for this image of Christ, for this great model of discipleship. Lord, I pray that as we've listened to this sermon series now for four weeks, that it resonates in our heart, that we leave here inspired to live like you, to walk like you, to impact the world the way you did, to love the way you did, to be the kind of examples in our family, to our wives and our husbands and our children, the way you did, and yet to understand that it's sometimes, even in our families, we have to choose between the family and you, and that is no choice. You come first. Father, I ask you in every possible way, let this resonate with us. Let us reflect on his life, and let us walk every day of our lives for whatever number of days we have left, to continue to serve you and walk towards you. We put all of this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen.